This is like a trillion dollar opportunity. You've never seen such a big economic opportunity. If you invested in renewables 10 years ago, your return on investment would be massive. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, joined by my partner in crime, Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hello, Scotty. No crime on Canusa Street. It's a very <laughs> not, not today. part of the world. <laughs> Especially on the Canadian side, very which is where so. we are today. We're in a pop-up studio in Toronto, the Eurasia Group in BMO, Bank of Montreal, uh, is doing a Canada-U.S. summit. So we've been here taking advantage of the phenomenal expertise uh, that's gathered today. And I'm really excited about our guest, uh, the Honorable Catherine McKenna. You're going to introduce her properly, but she just came off stage. So I look forward to cross-examining her in great detail uh, about what she had to say. So Chris, why don't you introduce uh, Minister McKenna to our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Catherine McKenna is the founder and principal of Climate and Nature Solutions. She's the chair of the UN Secretary General's new high-level expert group on net zero commitments of non-state entities. And she's a distinguished visiting fellow at Columbia University's Climate School and their Center on Global Energy Policy and the recently launched Women Leading on Climate at COP26. As Canada's former Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, first one to have the Environment and Climate Change title, yes, very absolutely. important. Um, she was the lead negotiator uh, of the Paris Agreement, in particular Article 6 concerning carbon markets. She then successfully negotiated Canada's first comprehensive climate change plans with provinces, territories, and, very important, Indigenous communities. So she comes to us a person of ideas, a person of action, and a perfect guest for us on Canusa Street. Welcome, Catherine McKenna. Well, it's great to be here. It's funny because when I saw Canusa, I thought about when I was a young kid as a swimmer, and we used to go to Flint, Michigan. I'm from Hamilton, Ontario. Our, yeah. I guess, sister city was uh, Flint, Wait. Michigan, and it was the Canusa Games. <laughs> so oh, no I was kidding. Like, Wait, am I going back in time? Oh, wow. But we're kind of moving forward in time, and now we're like adults, so that's good. <laughs> Excited <laughs> about this conversation. Yes, and, uh, and we have a different feeling about water in Flint. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. But you, yours floated and no lead, I hope yeah. so. <laughs> Thank, thanks for that, Chris. Way to, way to lead off on high note. Yeah, yeah way, to, way to be a buzzkill, Sam. So I hope that's fixed, by the way. Yeah, I do believe it has been. But, well, but actually, access to water, clean water, is an environmental justice issue um, between many places, including Canada and the United States. It's not just Flint in the United States and in Canada, the North, I think. We're with still, indigenous communities, actually absolutely. beyond just the North. Uh, sure. We have a huge clean drinking water problem. I mean, the government's been working hard on it, but it, hard things are hard. Hard things are hard. So I'd like to start out, uh, you just came off stage. We were downstairs listening to you. Phenomenal panel discussion. You gave an impassioned plea for action when it comes to climate. And um you nailed it. Uh, I believe in action, not just words. But so my question to you is, why aren't you in government still? Because you were you were in there. You know, my question normally is, why are you still in government? Like, I feel like we didn't quite get enough of your leadership. And there's still more uh, 
passion out there. So why, why aren't you in government anymore? Well, it's kind of a funny question because I, I kind of was like, after the pandemic, you know what? I have three kids, teenagers, and all I care about is climate. And I was doing, you know, in government. All due respect to your kids. Yeah. Well, I care my kids and climate are the same thing. I know, actually. I know. I'm just kidding. And, and I, I just started to step back and I said like, okay, how can I be the most effective? Because when I got into politics, I, li- I literally got in and I said, I'm not in this forever. And I know probably a lot of politicians say this, but I really said this. I am here to get a change in government and to make a difference on the files I care about. One was climate, one was indigenous issues, um, one was Canada's place in the world. And I kind of felt that I'd done what I came to do. And people may say, well, well, if you really care about climate, why aren't you in government? Because there's a whole big world out there. Yeah. And my background previous to being in government was global. Uh, I worked mm-hmm. for uh, well, I worked for a law firm in Indonesia, and then I worked for a UN peacekeeping mission. Then I did I started a, a charity doing work, um, lawyers doing pro bono work globally. And climate is a global issue. And during my time as minister, I spent a lot of time, including, I will say during the Trump era, we created the Minister on Climate Action, Little Canada, with China and uh, the EU to try to keep the world moving forward. That was a different time with China, I will say. But we had to keep on moving forward. And so I just decided that you know what, in Canada, we have a price on pollution, we're phasing out coal, we have a clean fuel standards, we're making massive investments, including in infrastructure. When I was minister, there was still work to be done, in particular in oil and gas and getting our emissions down there. But I felt like it's time to move on. And I I think that's okay. Like, I think it's It's totally okay. And (laughs) and there's been this real trend because we've seen a number of women um, politicians who step down and then everyone's like, wait a minute, that's not how it goes. Can they not take it? And so actually, ironically, when I was like, okay, I'm kind of done here. I actually was like, okay, maybe I have to stay because then people will take the worst lesson out of this that I couldn't hack it. I got a lot of flack and I got a lot of hate. But that wasn't why I left. I actually left because I want to do more. And I think globally I can play a a useful role. And that's why I took on chairing for the UN Secretary General, net zero standards. They say non-state entities, just so people know what it is. It's like, what are the criteria? If you were going to say you were net zero and you're a business or a financial institution or city or region, what does that mean? And, and so I think it's really important because I'm a lawyer and I think having standards and criteria will actually drive what we need to do. Because in climate, we need to do two things. We need to drastically reduce emissions now and we need to drastically move money from dirty to clean energy at scale. And, and so look, you know, you have to decide in life, how are you going to spend your time? Yeah. I only want to do climate. There were some other things in politics. I was like, I can't even be bothered with some of this stuff. And so it was time to it was time to move on. And I think that's a okay. People can do that. I feel super zen with it. And I actually feel like I'm able to make a bigger difference now, which I feel really fortunate about. It's it really is a okay. And I'm so glad I asked the question because that's a phenomenal answer. And uh, but going to do more things, going to the UN, it feels like that's a place where doing things actually doesn't happen. So so in terms of defining the criteria and the process and all that, do you feel like the UN it, it c- can make progress? And and Chris, I promise I'll let you get a word in edgewise here. And- well, it's an interesting question. So people can go look at our report, go, because I'll do a little plug. I also sure. run a business. It's called Climate and Nature uh, Solutions, climateandnature.com. And we'll put that the in the show notes. The report is there. Yeah. Yeah. You can see. So we issued the report. So it was an independent expert group. So in the UN, yes, had a secretariat, but the secretary general had asked me as chair to come out with a report on something really important, which is like, 
it was like, what are the criteria and standards that you need to do if you're going to say we're net zero? And by the way, 90% of GDP is covered by net zero targets at the national um, uh, state or business level. Um, and so what does it mean when you do that? And then number two, how do you address greenwashing? Because everyone's net zero or clean yeah. or carbon neutral. Right, right. And the report actually got great billing. Like probably the best thing was like the economists, they were like, despite the sophomoric name, this report by McKenna is hard hitting or something, whatever. Right, yeah. <laughs> because it just actually says what you need to do. And we need to get in the climate world, assuming you believe in climate change and assuming you believe in the science and that we need to reduce emissions uh, by 50% by 2030, which is what we need to do to stay below, uh, stay below two degrees, driving for 1.5, um, we need to act now. And so just actually outlining what you need to do and what you can't do is actually a very useful exercise because business is used to do this. And so I'll tell you, because people might say, well, UN, I made it. So there were 10 recommendations and they were written in English. And so the recommendations are things like, you can't just have a 2050 target. You have to have interim targets. You have yeah. to have a 2025 target, a 2030 target. You have to show progress. Approaching it like an yeah. elite athlete. As, like, you said. as I say, yeah. like, I I think it's funny because people will say, what was the most useful in life? And I'm like, none of my degrees. Um, you know, being a lawyer, nah, not really. That's sometimes downside. But I was like, I was a competitive swimmer. swimmer. And I still yeah. swim. I yep. love swimming. And you got to think like an elite athlete because it's actually quite similar because you have a stretch goal. And when we were swimming, I, I trained for Olympics. I made Olympic 1988, right? Yeah. I didn't make it, but who cares? Like that wasn't the point. The point was I had a goal and I just, that was everything. I didn't care about it being prime minister or anything. I just wanted to be an Olympian. Right. And so you do it a long time out. But that's not your goal. That's your ultimate goal. But you better be making progress on interim right. goals. Yeah. And that's a stretch goal because you don't know if you can, like, that's the goal you want to make, but it's going to require a lot of work to get there. And it's, you know, you have to have something that's ambitious. And then every day you just work really hard. And then some days it sucks. Some days you make great progress. You have people that support you. You innovate. You pull yourself up and you never give up. And this is what I think we need this attitude on climate because sometimes people say to me, oh, well, your criteria and credit standards are hard. I'm like, oh yeah, yes, what? Hard, hard things are hard. Exactly, climate change is hard. But let's actually imagine the finish line because that's a way better way. Like I didn't every day when I was having a crappy day in the pool, like, you know, spend all my time thinking about her. Like it's, I'm so sad because it's hard and I'm sucking on your sore shoulder. I was like, okay, what do I want? What is my goal? Right. And I think if we were able to focus a little bit more on what the finish line looks like, it is a more prosperous economy. It is better jobs. It is tackling pollution, short-term pollution, as well as long-term mm -hmm. pollution. It's national security. It's it's equity and justice. Um, and those are all really important. And imagine that's what your world looks like. Like, why wouldn't you want to strive for that? But you can't, there's no shortcuts. And I think this is why this report was important because a lot of people are really excited. They're like, there's a reason they're doing it. They don't have to, these are voluntary commitments. They're putting up their hand and saying, I'm a climate leader, but there's nothing behind it. And I don't care in a way I care, of course, by 2050, but I don't really care if that's what you're talking about and you aren't doing things right now with clear targets and showing progress in a comparable, verifiable way. Mm -hmm. And that's what the business world actually, in a way, well, some may think it's hard. They appreciate because this is all measurable. 
This isn't like this isn't like we're gonna guesstimate. When, no, you can actually measure emissions. You can measure progress. Your money can either go to clean and scale, or it can continue funding fossil fuels. Like those are all measurable. And and you know what? Then you have to explain it. You have to explain it to consumers. You have to say, explain it to investors. You have to explain it to shareholders. Sometimes you have to explain it to regulators because we're moving uh, to regulation, certainly in the risk uh, piece. But Europe is regulating net zero. Um, and and you've got to end up in court. So I think and you've got to explain this, to your kids. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, of but course, and that is who are big the activists. Most important because yeah. you know what, my kids. In a way, when I think I when I decided it was time to go, is it. Like, I look at them and I'm thinking, I am spending so much time, all my time, government doing these things. Often, to be honest, I think like things like question period, I, they, they should be important. But sometimes I feel like it's just a game yeah. and, and all of these other things I'm doing. And I'm like, OK, am I really making a difference in moving the dial? And I felt like, no, not as much as I can. And, and I also like being an independent voice. Maybe I am not the ideal politician in a way. I'm a super team player, <laughs> but sometimes I feel like, you know, I need a little more freedom. I can't have people always managing me. And so it's like a little bit better maybe for everyone sometimes that you, you're like, okay. It's well, except you're killing me because it's exactly that approach, which is what we need in politics, but it's okay. Uh, because every you get to do whatever you want, and I'm not in politics, and neither are you, Sam. So we're but we not. we need new people. Like, yeah. geez, like we can't. We need a new generation of people. We need more diversity. And this is what I tell people. Like, right. I want people to come in. The one thing I I am doing, though, is I am calling out the hate, and that is Absolutely. not okay. Because we will not get good people going to politics. Because already a lot of people say it's bonkers. Why would you? ever do this and in particular that's true of women um marginalized communities and we need that diversity you make far better decisions don't take it from me take it from mckinsey but i saw it in government when you have to deal with a very complex issue and people like take medical assistance and dying i know we're getting a bit off the topic Mm -hmm. but how you make decisions like you're regular people at the table too you can be all fancy with whatever your title is but you also have to make decisions about people's lives and what you bring to it, like we had in, in our government, not only did we have a gender balanced government, which was super annoying at the beginning before they named the cabinet, because everyone's like, oh my God, it's gonna be so hard. Where are we gonna find the women? <laughs> I was like, could y'all just shut up? <laughs> and so, you know, so we did that, but we also got broader diversity. And imagine you're dealing with an issue like medical assistance and dying. You yeah. have one one cabinet minister who is a quadriplegic you have one who is my friend she was a a, a paralympian but she's legally blind you had someone who had had breast cancer you had two um members who uh i think we had two who are Sikh, where their religious beliefs make it more complex like mm-hmm. you had young old and i was like gosh this is how you can grapple with an issue that the public is grappling with. Otherwise, you're just sitting over here with your fancy clothes on, like, you know, and you're, right. everyone's sharing the same experience, making decisions for people that you have no idea what their experience life is like. And that is not good politics. So I think um, we need to attract more diversity. So I am spending time calling out the hate, the discrimination, also the disinformation on climate. Obviously, that is a massive issue if we want climate action, because we do need to, we need to, I, I care about climate, but climate and democracy are so related and we have to protect our democracy. And that means good people need to go in and we need good information getting out to the public so they can make informed decisions. I want to ask you about something there because you were talking about investors, you were talking about consumers. 
What do you think of ESG as, as an idea, and do you think that we've got standards for environmental social governance that provide the right market signals, or, or is this debate a distraction from the kind of steps that you have in your report? Well, I should say, okay, so I'm not an ESG expert. To be honest, net zero is if you take the E, environment, and then you do a sub. <laughs> and the sub is called emissions. <laughs> that is what I do, and it's very measurable. Now, ESG, of course, is measurable too. It's just more complex, because you're bringing in a variety of different factors, and um, it's, but it's essentially risk. I mean, like, this is what is bonkers, when people are like, we're not gonna allow ESG. I was like, oh, that's great. Well, the market actually works on information. So if you do not provide the market with proper information, including about risk, yeah. then you're doing a disservice um, to all the people that are investing in money, regular people that are doing this, and climate, is a massive risk, but so is governance. If you have bad governance, that's a massive risk. So I don't wanna, like ESG I think is really important and there's work being done on that. I do think that net zero, there's a lot of attention now also on net zero because it's super measurable. And this is what I say to folks when folks are like, yeah, I don't know, like net zero. I'm like, no, no, sorry, sorry, we can measure this. If you believe in climate change, you believe in the science, and you believe that we need to take action, and you believe there's a huge economic opportunity, I got something for you. It's called net zero. Your emissions need to go down, your money goes at scale to clean, and you don't do certain things. You are based on the science, you do not invest in new fossil fuel infrastructure, and everyone's like, well, Russian war. I said, well, this is not coming from me, this is coming from the International Energy Agency, and actually look what's happened in Europe. They were gonna get off fossil fuels, reducing their, their uh, reliance on fossil fuels a lot faster. If you look at gas, I think they're reducing it by, I don't know if it's half, by 2025. Like, it's a significant amount, and, and so, we can do this, but I mean, it's interesting that it takes a crisis like that for people to do things that are no brainers, energy efficiency. Like, that's, let's save money. Like, that's actually a small C mm -hmm. conservative idea. Let's just do that. But we don't lean in enough on it, and I'm not entirely sure why, but that's why net zero is good. It also is about innovation and economic opportunity. This is the biggest, I tell this is like a trillion dollar opportunity. You've never seen such a big economic opportunity. If you invested in renewables 10 years ago, your return on investment would be massive. And and that's true of it. like, you look at the price point for, for battery storage, for electric vehicles, but we're not, we're not, we're not measuring it. Like there isn't enough discipline within the corporate world, I think, and an understanding. And so that's why I just want, this is why it's a bit different, long answer, mm -hmm. but it's mm -hmm. a bit different from ESG because it's actually super measurable. Is it hard? Yeah, it's really hard. Like you got to do your supply chain. Right. So let me, let me follow up on that and, and just ask a question about the price on pollution, which for some people is a carbon tax. When we did USMCA, there was an allowance. I always think of the protectionism in USMCA as about protecting our high standards. There's an allowance for a border adjustment fee if you're talking about imports that haven't paid any carbon tax. And the reason that's important is otherwise the companies that do the right thing and, and, and do pay that carbon tax are gonna get put out of business by the people who don't. So I understand the concept there. Yep. But it seems like a sort of Damocles a little bit over our economy because the US has so few jurisdictions that have a carbon price. How do we work that out between us without hurting competitiveness, but at the same time avoiding a conflict that's not gonna really help either side? 
So that's really interesting. So my background, I'm a trade lawyer. So I actually really care about how do you bring climate and trade together, but not actually create a trade barriers. Right. And that's hard, right? Because border is. carbon adjustments, often people say that, but they actually like, we just actually want to keep other people's, um, their, uh, their um, exports out of our economy. So it, that could be a good reason or whatever, but that's just different from what we're talking about. Um, so first of all, I need to correct one thing. So oh, for please. all of your American listeners, and even Canadians, in Canada, the Supreme Court, we have to go to the Supreme Court to fight for the price on pollution. It was not found to be a tax. Why? Because it's revenue neutral. All the money goes back in a transparent way. That was my, I had to have a fight all the way to the top of the Prime Minister's <laughs> office because I said, can we not just do green things and no one knows what's going on? And then everyone's like, I'm paying more for gas. So what happens? <laughs> if a price on pollution, the money goes back, more families are better off and you get money. Like, And, and it actually raises folks out of poverty because if you are lower income, you don't have an extra houses, you don't have extra cars, you rely on public transit, you have a small apartment. So I think that's just important. Mm -hmm. the, it's interesting here at this conference, because I was just talking to someone who will remain unnamed, um, but involved in the administration about border carbon adjustments. And I think that's they're not a bad thing. I mean, it's, it, in a way, it makes a lot more sense if everyone has a price, so it's pretty obvious. Like, you can compare, because you can't be doing, app it's hard to do apples and oranges. But let's say for the sake of argument, you are able to do with integrity a comparison of what a price would be in comparable measures. So you do have some regulation in the US, you obviously have the IRA um, and your bipartisan infrastructure bills, so those have impacts. Then I think you know, the goal shouldn't be Canada and the U.S. to fight. It should be we should have border carbon Amen. adjustment yeah. tax um, uh, for both countries and, and probably allies to the extent that they are actually doing things on climate. Europe is. I know that, like, sometimes everyone's, like, fighting over, like, IRA. Why do they do that? Who cares? Like, everyone's got to get over themselves. There's a big world out there. It's actually not very nice right now. And so allies better act like allies. So I think you could bring in Japan. You could do this. And then... In a way, it's a carrot stick for other countries. So what people don't know is actually China does have a carbon price on their electricity system. It may be imperfect, but I did once have a look at that. So maybe it'll be an incentive for everyone to do the hard work. Like that's what our goal should be, because otherwise it's just really a trade thing. Mm -hmm. It actually should be, there's a difference because people are paying a price because our, you know, materials, cement, aluminum, steel, whatever, um, are a lot less carbon intensive. And so there should be a cost to folks who aren't. So I'm all for it. Is it complicated? Yes. But I'm okay. I'm, I said to folks, happy to work on this. I did Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. That's about yes. carbon markets. And I, I do think we need to get to this space. But people, hope can't spring eternal. You can't just say, I don't like that guy. We're going to come up with barbing, border carbon adjustments, not do the work in our own country and say it's all kind of equal. Um, so, but you know, you, you can do it, you gotta do the work, you gotta figure it out. But I think that's a good incentive for everyone to dig deep and actually decarbonize. So we're gonna, that's interesting. We're gonna take a little break and when we come back, um, I've got, we've got time maybe for one more question. And I wanna talk about the transition um, from a fossil economy to a mineral economy. So when we come back. Are you red, white, and blue or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo. Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already. That's why you're here. 
The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. Uh, this is Chris Sands, and I'm here with Scotty Greenwood. We are talking today to Catherine McKenna, former Minister of Environment and Climate Change in Canada, now running her own business. And we've been talking about the business of the environment and how we get to net zero. You, you were going to ask a big question on that, Scotty. Yeah, and I know we don't have a lot of time left, but you have talked about the urgency and the imperative to transition off of fossils to get to net zero. And one of the things that's obvious is... Um, the new economy, if you will, or the the transition off of fossils involves critical minerals in 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 significant ways, right? Whether that is wind turbines, solar panels, electric vehicle batteries, um, critical minerals are important for that transition. They're important for other things too, defense goods, consumer goods. But let's just let's just focus on the economy. You clearly are a get it done person. You are also minister of the of infrastructure, environment, and you. Your passion. That's why I kind of wanted you to be in government because my observation, I just want to see your reaction is Canada today, you're not in government anymore, but the government of Canada, provincial and federal governments are saying everything right about the transition to the mineral economy. But the time it takes to build a new processing facility in Canada is somewhere from 20 years to never. So like it is very difficult to say to the private sector, just, just build it um, because it's unclear when, if ever, you're going to get permission from the various levels of government. Even if you do everything right, it could take forever. So, how do you how do you deal with that uh, the the problem of pace? Because other other countries can move more quickly, but still still be responsible. So, I mean, pace is key. I mean, we can't be like announcing a critical mineral strategy and like talking to our allies about this, and then we aren't able to deliver the critical minerals. Um, and the good news is you actually have someone awesome, my good friend, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who's the Minister yep. of Industry, and he is like the Energizer Bunny. So there are people definitely in government who want to get things done. Um, and I will say, so it is important because sometimes there's some myth busting we have to do. So we brought in a new impact assessment act. I was the minister. We did it because actually we couldn't get anything done. Why could we not get things done? Well, for a whole number of reasons. One, we only looked at the negative impact of projects, which I thought we needed. And, you know, sometimes oh, yeah. you would make the case anyway when you have a press release, but you're like, and it creates jobs justifying why you did it. So. You need to actually do a proper analysis of the impacts, but also you need to consider the positive economic impacts. Also, it was very slow. So we said one project, one assessment. We're a federation. We need to stop doing multiple assessments, like provinces working with the federal government. That is way smarter. Um, we shortened the timelines, um, and we said the clock, this is this is something important to me, and, and Jim Carr, who unfortunately passed away, he was our Minister of Natural Resources. We worked together on this that we wouldn't the federal government could not stop the clock unless they needed more information or clarification but there was one other thing that people often think is a barrier but actually causes the most delay and we said but you're gonna have to engage with indigenous peoples at the beginning you cannot right. show up three years into your assessment whatever dump a bazillion documents on the desk of communities because often there's more than one community and say it's fully formed can you just accept it we'll give you five jobs so that just ends up, to be honest, in court, 
and rightly so, because the communities are like, wait a minute, what is the upside of this? You haven't even consulted us to understand what we want. Sometimes for good projects, they definitely want this to go ahead, but they want an equity share. Sure, so yeah. They, and it, it's funny because sometimes I hear from folks, if only, you know, just jam it through. This isn't working in it. We have a constitution. You will end up, they actually have the ability to, indigenous people rightly have the ability to stop projects on their own land. So you got to do the work. Good companies know this, but that will speed up the process. That was the whole point. But sometimes people are like, well, that sounds really woke. That's not woke. That's actually our constitution. And actually that is how you will get things done. Um, and you will avoid court and you will avoid, uh, hopefully, you know, demonstrations and all these other things. So. Um, but I agree, like, also, you know, everything in government, I was the most impatient person in government. I think my team, they're just exhausted all the time. But I was like, I don't know, I'm not going to be in here forever. We've got to get things done. And I think there will be a requirement. Like, the bottom line is government doesn't build things. It's right. business. So it can't be that, I mean, government, I mean, you can create incentives. We are doing incentives. At the end of the day, you have to have business who's going to be willing to do that. And we are a small economy. So I think we got to make sure that we're bringing in players too. We don't have that many companies. Um, but I think the government will have to think about this. Like in a way, many of the, if you're a foreign company, you may not be as familiar with the indigenous communities. We had a great, um, my, my friend Mark Pudlashley. He was uh, fabulous. On the panel. He's yeah. actually First Nations, but who cares? But yes, he is First Nations. He runs the First Nations major project office. And he's like, we are having the same conversations. How do we get projects built on our territory faster? But they're having it in a different room. So yeah. I think for folks that aren't from Canada, they may not understand that one, you got to do this. And two, it's a massive opportunity, but don't wait to the end and then try to jam people. This is not going to work. And that will be the way to do it. But the government, I think, can foster those conversations. They can decide, okay, here are priority areas. But there will be places that some communities do not. There are projects that will be too harmful. So, but that's also wasting your time. If you're going to go to those communities and they definitely don't want to do something, then I think you got to look somewhere else. But I think there's a way to do it. And I don't know, because I'm not, I'm not in government anymore, but I do think everyone's going to have to be way more creative. Um, and I sometimes I'm like, okay, the Atlantic Loop, we were going to get, we like, we're working hard on getting clean electricity across the Atlantic. I was like, why is this still, what? Yeah. It's still going on. So I think, um, we're getting back to my elite athlete thing. You do have to have interim targets and you need to hit them. And if you can't, then you need to figure out what is going on and why are you not hitting them. It can't just be an announcement and something's going to take 10 years and then you're realize actually taking 20. Shouldn't take 10 years. Hopefully, if it's going to happen, it happens, you know, in a you know number of years. It'll take a number of years for these major projects. But it happens or it doesn't because we're also you know, just wasting a lot of time and energy. But there's no, look, I don't know. There's no easy solution. In government, I'd be like, you know what? Hard things are hard. That was people made me a pillow when I left. I was like, hard things are hard. My favorite thing to say, because I was like, I don't, I don't care. It's hard. Yeah. Climate's hard. Getting major projects done are hard. Growing your economy, creating jobs, all hard. I don't know. We're in government, fortunate um, business. Sometimes I will say, okay, so we can't just always say government. Sometimes I think the Canadian business community needs to dig a little bit deeper. Um, and also, uh, be a little more um, innovative um, in how they approach things. Um, so I think that's a piece too. That's probably a longer discussion. But I, I mean, I think these all things are going to get have to get done because the reality is a pretty tough world out there. And if we don't want to get our lunch eaten by China um, and other places, then we allies are going to have to work together 
figure out how to break some log jams, but do it in a way that has integrity. Because as I said, you won't get things built anyway. Um, and uh, But no excuses, no excuses. Everyone just work hard. Okay. Chris, you gotta be fast. I, I gotta be fast. I wanna ask you a question because we're here in Toronto and I, I always, Sometime now, when I come to Toronto, I think of Jack Layton, who was former leader of the oh, yeah. Democratic Party. Yeah. And one of the things that he once said um, in some frustration with the U.S. was that on the environment, he really saw a virtue in Canada's cooperation because we had great technology, we had some great ideas. So, you know, we, I may not always agree with the government of the day down there, but there are people there who share my values and there's technologies that we can use that will make a difference. How do you see Canada's cooperation on these environmental topics? Are we competitors? Are we partners? Are we... Are we not reaching our potential? Or do you think about being a competitive swimmer? Do we need to be challenging each other? How do how do we relate as partners in this? How do we streamline to put it to put that. it in swimmer terms? Okay. Well, I mean, first of all, is it like I don't know? People are like, should we compete? It's so hard. We have to. I don't really care. Yeah, you're gonna compete, right? So, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Competition is actually good, good because it yes. makes people dig deeper, That's figure right. out new solutions, whatever. And the IRA will force Canada to dig deeper because if we want to get that capital. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I did do a little pitch. We got pension funds. They're very a lot of money. You know. There are opportunities we need to, hopefully they're looking at opportunities here in Canada too, but like, like, yeah, so we got to compete and I don't want to hear excuses about that and that's fine. And by the way, Americans are going to do that anyway, so you better go. And as I say, go with a deal, don't go with a problem or like just, you know, that's a right. vague thing. Like just say, here's a deal, You're, like you want yeah. money, you want to do it? Okay. So I think it's all good and I think that... Canadians like Americans, but that only gets you so far. <laughs> like, I think you got to make it real. Um, and the Canadians spend a lot of time, like, I've been to so many conferences, everyone's like, you know, why do Americans not think of us more? Why are they doing this? I was like, <laughs> oh my God, are we really having this conversation? I know. Like, Welcome to my world. We got a lot going for us. We got a great immigration system. We attract talent. We are smart. Our universities are very inexpensive. So we have an educated workforce. Like we got a lot. We got a strong democracy. We got challenges. We got a lot of things going yeah. for us. Like no excuses. Now just go and figure out what you're going to do together. But once again, I mean, everyone has to just like make it more real. And I always worry about announcements because I was like, okay, is anyone follow that announcement? Like, is anyone like, did, did anything <laughs> happen with that announcement? Yeah. Like, we delivered on that. But I think there's great opportunities. And when I was infrastructure minister, because sometimes people forget that because it was a shorter period, but I was in infrastructure for uh, two years, almost two years. Mm -hmm. And um, it was during the pandemic, so we got loads of money to go invest in, in um, clean solutions. I helped reform our Canada Infrastructure Bank so we could live leverage private capital by taking on some risk. And, and I was like, okay, why can't we do things to ourselves, like real things that are like bridges or, yeah. or like high speed rail, we all have all this money, or I don't know, like a super, super highways of charging stations. I was like, could we pick three things, just do three things that actually are things, like and yeah. just get them done. We all say we have this, all this money, there's all these opportunities, then just do it and, and make it real. And some of these things are actually not that hard. Charging stations on our major highways, people drive, by the way, Canadians spend well, that was so just much time driving Florida or driving to California. Maybe Americans, more of them will come back. But we have loads of people going on both sides of the border. I talked to, to Pete Buttigieg. I, we were talking about that. Gretchen Whitmer and, and she and I worked together because we had the Gordie Howe Bridge. I was like, let's do things. And it seems to be very weird because you say it. And I was one of those ministers quite annoying because after the call, I'd be like, hey, these are the three things we're doing. I only work in threes, really, or 10 <laughs> recommendations. There you go. Like, these are, okay, and 10 then, point plan or a three action item. But I think like if Canada and the US, out of the 
this conference said, we're gonna do three real things. And they were three, even if they are the biggest things, they were three real things and we're gonna deliver and we're gonna show next year what our progress is. I'd be super happy. Cause yeah. talking is, is cheap. I don't know, it's fine, it's nice. But uh, get things done way better. And as I say, what I worry about having spent a lot of time abroad um, and my focus was always on foreign policy, like the world is changing super fast and not in a positive way for countries like Canada and the US. And so we are going to have to figure out how to compete in a world where we're not the dominant, necessarily the dominant player. Well, yeah, I was never a dominant player, but major player with the, with the US. Um, I mean, I think the US is still obviously key, but it's just the configuration is much more challenging. And that means we got to dig even deeper because some of these countries can just do whatever they want. Um, so I don't know. I hope I inspire people. I want to inspire people to not be doom and gloom. Um, but You're not doom do and gloom. The do the work. Do the work. Yeah, and we no. can do hard things. Um, okay, amazing. Catherine McKenna, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, it's always great. And this we packed a lot into a very short podcast. So that was credit to our awesome guest. It, yes, yes. They talk, people talk about energy efficiency. She is also <laughs> message efficient, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> uh, Phew. Well, that was a whirlwind, my friend, and totally worth it. It was great to talk to Catherine McKenna. It was fantastic. She has the energy and, uh, and really some really great ideas. I'm so glad that she is still contributing outside government. There are lots of ways to be involved in, in this challenge, and she's taken on some really great work. Uh, you know, I would have liked several more hours, though, because some of the things we really do need to talk about, like, you know, I'm really not satisfied with um, anyone's answer, anyone in Canada's answer on the pace of permitting projects. And um, good intentions are great, but we need um, we need people like Catherine McKenna inside government. Um, Minister Champagne, also similarly energetic, but he's a party of one. And it's, and it's going to take everybody, including provinces, including opposition, including government, including indigenous nations. Like it's going to take everybody if we want to build processing facilities for critical minerals for the clean energy transition in our lifetime. Everybody's got to agree to do that. And when have all those people agreed on anything? Oh, I know. And the hard thing is, can we get some clear rules, clear standards, some way that people know they're doing good and they get recognized for doing good work. And so her, uh, Catherine McKenna's work on 10 items, deliverable action items is really crucial. And I love her practicality. So it was really nice to have her here on Canoe Sister. It was great. And it's always great to see you, my friend. It is indeed. All right. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.